Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to River City Church. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you are new or visiting, I want to say welcome to you. Glad to have you guys here. We're super thankful for, their, for you. Uh, like uh, um, Becky and Dustin mentioned, this is a new space that we're in. We just moved in a couple of weeks ago, and so we're really grateful for how God orchestrated all those details. All the credit for us being here goes to him. And um, Also, just want to say thanks to the many of you guys who have just put in lots of time and effort and energy and prayer and, and finances even so that we could uh, turn the space into a place where we could meet and, and all that kind of stuff. So just wanted to say thanks about that. And so uh, just grateful for all that, grateful for our space, but uh, even more so uh, together this morning we're thankful for God and we're thankful for his word. And so um, last week we began a series taking a look, uh, just going verse by verse through the book of Colossians. And uh, Colossians, uh, we saw last week, is a book written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a church in the city of Colossae that's in the modern area of Turkey. And what we said is that the, what we saw last week as we began our study is that the main reason that Paul is writing this letter, the main reason he's writing the letter to this church is that they were in danger of succumbing to religious syncretism. And religious syncretism is, it's the merging or the blending of many different beliefs or ideologies that kind of come into one thing. And so uh, what was happening in the church in Colossae is not that there was one heresy or one sketchy theology guy or one, one dude trying to pull everybody away to his way of thinking. Rather, it was the greater, the spirit of the age, the culture that these young believers found themselves in that was influencing their thinking in lots of different ways. We talked about how the issue that the Colossian church was facing 2,000 years ago is the same thing that, in, that, is, that we face as followers of Jesus today. Christians in every age need to learn how to carefully discern how the spirit of the age, the thinking of our day, is infiltrating our faith and tempting us to drift from sound doctrine. And so we saw last week as Paul began his letter that he began uh, by praying for this church, by praying for these younger believers, and he asked God for three things last week. We saw that he asked that they would, God would show them what his will for their lives is, who, not, not what jobs he wanted them to take or who he wanted them to marry, but his will in the sense of who he wants them to be, their character and their, and their likeness to Jesus, and that they would be able to apply that to how they thought and how they lived. And the second thing Paul prayed is that they would honor God with the way that they lived, that they wouldn't just know true things, but they would live in light of what was actually true. And he closes his prayer in the third part of uh, our passage last week, and he says, he asked God that God would give them the power that they need to obey and to live for him, even though it was hard. You see, what Paul was trying to teach this young church was not just what was true versus what was wrong. Paul was trying to teach them how to discern for themselves the truth. And we saw that at the, at the center of all of that was the person and the work of Jesus. Paul is trying to teach the Colossians to judge for themselves what sound doctrine was and how to discern for themselves the air of the syncretistic thinking around them. You see, like, they're, like they experience and like we do, there is a never-ending stream of ideologies that either seek to boldly or subversively undermine the truths about the gospel. Sometimes it is outright opposition, but more often than not, it is a subversive thinking that seeks to undermine the truths of the gospel. And so like the Colossians, we too need to learn to discern the truth of the gospel from the spirit of the age so that we can hold firmly to the gospel that saves. In today's passage, we're going to see that the first thing that we need to robustly understand in order to do that is the absolute supremacy of Jesus. 
You see, what Jesus has done for us, it hinges on who he is. What Jesus accomplishes for us in his person, in his work on the cross, that, that invariably hinges on who he is. And as we study this morning, what I want you to see, what I want that Paul thinks is so critically important for the Colossians and for us to really believe and live in light of is the supremacy of Jesus because it's, this is the truth. Because Jesus is the supreme Lord of everything, he is the sufficient Savior we must exclusively cling to. Because Jesus is the supreme Lord of everything, he's the sufficient Savior we must exclusively cling to. One commentator, I think, just sums it up really well. He says this, a robust understanding of the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus will be both the Colossians and our best protection against error. You see, your gut reaction is not the best heresy radar. How you feel about something is not the best litmus test for whether or not it is true and right and good. Google is not a good tool for discerning the spirit of the age. But the person and the work of Jesus always is. And so we must study that and understand that well if we're going to live in light of the truths about the gospel. So let's begin in prayer, asking God that he would show us, that he would remind us, that he would uh, deeply root within us the truths of the gospel and the implications of the good news of the supremacy of Jesus. So let's pray and then we'll read our passage and begin this morning. God, we are so thankful for you and we are so grateful for your word. God, we just come with humble hearts that we would seek to submit ourselves under the authority of your word. God, we, we want to be a people who, uh, God, whose lives are led and, and who are guided and directed and influenced, uh, not just by our own thing, but by, but by yours. We want to submit ourselves under the authority of your word so that we might grow and learn to love and live and follow you. And God, we pray that that would be for our good and for your great and abiding glory. God, as, as I preach, as I teach, as we hear, as we learn, God, I pray that you'd fill me with your spirit so that anything I would say would be from you and good and beneficial. God, give us hearts that are teachable and moldable this morning. We love you. Thanks that you loved us first. In your good name, amen. Amen. Well, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there is a shelf of them in the back corner. And if you don't like any of those, I'm sure my wife has set up a lost and found table. You'd probably find like a leather-bound one. Maybe somebody's notes are already in there, right? And you can just skip ahead, right? Um, but we're in Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 15 through 23. It begins this way. The Son, talking about Jesus here. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things. In him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things that are in heaven or things on earth, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. For once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of the, your evil behavior, but now he, God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope that is held out in the gospel, this is the gospel you have heard that, you have, that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Paul begins our passage this morning with a manifesto about Jesus. 
There are few places in the Bible that so clearly, so powerfully, so concretely articulate the person and the work of Jesus. And Paul's description of Jesus here is meant to lead us to one conclusion. That Jesus is God and he has authority. He has supremacy over everything. Verse 15, Paul begins by talking about Jesus as the image of the invisible God. If you want to know God, you have to know Jesus. You cannot know God without knowing Jesus. There are hints of God in our conscience and throughout creation, but to know the nature and the character of God, you have to go to Jesus. You go nowhere else. If you're going to go anywhere else, you're going to get lost. Hebrews 1.3 echoes this truth when it says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You see, it's really important that we understand that Jesus is not, is not simply a hologram of God. He's not just a manifestation of God. He was not this temporary, like, like uh, temporary uh, video call that God just put onto the earth. No, Jesus was God himself in flesh. The Greek word that's translated image here, it doesn't simply mean picture. It has the connotation that the image was more than an image. The image brought the actual presence of that object into, into, into bear. One commentator says it this way. Paul's point is that in Christ, the invisible God became visible. He shared the same substance as God and made God's character known in this earthly sphere of existence. The revelation of God in Christ is such that we can actually see him, even with our limitations. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Verse 15 goes on and says that he is the firstborn over all creation. And that phrase can seem confusing, but the purpose is not to describe that Jesus was born or that he was created, but the purpose is to describe him as the eldest son. In um, Israelite culture and in many uh, ancient Near Eastern cultures, the eldest son had unique privileges, including the rights of inheritance. And you see the, the name, the firstborn, the title of being the firstborn is therefore a title of honor. It's a title of authority. It's a title of, of dignity. It's not about being first in time. It's about being first in priority. It's about Jesus' supremacy. So Jesus is supreme over all creation. He is the firstborn. He is the eldest son. He is the one to whom everything is owed. Verse 16 goes on, that Jesus isn't just the firstborn of all creation. Jesus created all things. In case you were wondering what all things included, Paul gives you a few things on that list. That would include things in heaven, things on earth, things that are visible, things that are invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities or powers. That should cover it. That's pretty much all the things, right? It's important to note here that Paul includes the spiritual realm and not just the physical realm. You see, there really are angels. There really are demons. There really are spiritual authorities and spiritual powers. And Paul is making abundantly and absolutely clear that Jesus is the one to whom all of them obey. He's the one who's created all things. He has authority over everything. You see, there is nothing Jesus does not have authority over because there is nothing he did not create. Paul uses these three phrases to describe Jesus' role in creation. He says, 
The creation happened in him, it happened through him, and it happened for him. In him, it means that Jesus conceived of creation and its complexities. Creation was his idea. Through him means that Jesus brought creation into existence. It came to be through his power, through his ability. One commentator writes, he is in a sense the foreman of the construction. And lastly, it is for him. You cannot miss this. Creation is in him, it is through him, but it is for him. The literal expression is unto him, which means that Jesus is the goal of all creation. Everything exists to display his glory, and ultimately, Jesus will be glorified in all aspects of creation. Matt Chandler, I think, just really wisely sums it up this way. He says, no one has a choice about whether or not your life is going to glorify God. You are either going to glorify him by being a trophy of his grace and mercy, or you're going to glorify him by being an object of his justice. But you will glorify God. Even the most hardened heart in the end is going to bring glory to the name and the power and the justice of Jesus. And so Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the creator of everyone and everything. He is the firstborn of all creation. But Paul's not even done yet. Verses 17 through 19 go on to add that Jesus is before all things, that he didn't just create them, he actually continues them in existence. He holds all things together. Without him, nothing that exists would continue to exist. He is the firstborn from among the dead. He is the risen. He is the ruling. He is the reigning king of everything. And the whole section culminates in verse 18 with these powerful words. And Paul says, so that in everything he would have supremacy. That in everything he would have supremacy. You see, Jesus is preeminent. He is first. He is supreme. He is the Lord of everything. He is Lord over everything we can see. He is Lord over everything we cannot see. He is Lord over life. He is Lord over death. He is Lord of all. Verse 19, he is God. And what is such good news about that is that Paul doesn't stop at verse 19. You see, Paul goes on with his manifesto about Jesus to tell us how Jesus uses his supremacy. Paul doesn't just tell us that Jesus is supreme. He tells us how Jesus exercises his supremacy, and it is such good news. If we don't robustly understand the supremacy of Jesus, these verses, the, the coming verses that here that talk about our reconciliation with God, they don't matter. If Jesus isn't supreme, these verses have no meaning. They, have, they, don't, they are worthless. Because who Jesus is is the basis for what he has done. And in verse 20 through 22, Paul tells us what Jesus has done. He tells us how Jesus uses his supremacy. In verse 20, he says he reconciles us to God. In verse second part of verse 20, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Verse 22 adds that he presents us holy in God's sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. You see, Jesus uses his supremacy to save us. Jesus, the supreme king over everything, does not lord his supremacy over his creation. He uses it to save a rebellious creation. You see, what we can't miss in this verse is that we needed saving. Verse 21 says, you are alienated from God. You are enemies of God. You are enemies of the God. He just spent four verses saying is the creator and the ruler of everything. That's the God who you're enemies of. 
That's the God who you are alienated from. And the reason Paul gives for our alienation from God is our evil behavior. And Paul is not just talking about like morally bad behavior. Paul is talking about rebellion. You see, at the root of all sin is rebellion. It is a rejection of God. It's a rejection of his will. It's a rejection of his decrees. It's a rejection of his authority. It's a rejection of his good desires. And it's an enthroning of ourselves on the seat of the king of our lives. At the root of all sin is saying, God, I disregard who you are, and I'm going to put myself as the one whose opinion matters most and whose value matters most and whose priorities matter most. You see, sin is mutinous rebellion, and that is why it is so serious to God. It is rebellion against the king and the creator of the universe. When Paul says in verse 21 that Jesus' death gives us peace with God, What he's saying is that Jesus' death, the penalty that Jesus paid, absorbed God's just wrath for our rebellion. Jesus' work on the cross absorbed God's just wrath for our sin. He paid the penalty our rebellion deserves so that we could have peace with God, that we could have right relationship with God. And what we cannot miss is that Jesus is the only one who could pay that. He is the only one who could pay that. As R.C. Lucas in his commentary on Colossians writes, Jesus is a sufficient Savior because he is the Supreme Lord. Jesus is a sufficient Savior because he is the Supreme Lord. Jesus' work on our behalf is effective. It is sufficient. It is enough because of who he is. God is infinite, and our sin against him is an infinite offense. And in order to atone for this offense, a sacrifice needed to be infinite. And so Jesus, as God, is the infinite and the sufficient sacrifice that we needed. His work on our behalf is sufficient because he is supreme. We cannot add anything to what he has done, nor are there any other sufficient saviors in all of creation to make us right with God. And this is why Paul concludes this passage with an urgent call to stand firm in the truth. You see, the error that the Colossians were facing is the same thing that threatens us today. It was the spirit of the age that has not changed in 2,000 years. Warren Wearsby, I think, just really helpfully sums it up this way. He says, The false teachers of Colossae, like the false teachers of our own day, they would not deny the importance of Jesus. They would simply dethrone him, giving him prominence, but not preeminence. The false teachers of the Colossians, the Anavars, they don't seek to just disregard Jesus altogether, but they dethrone him. They give him prominence, but not preeminence. Jesus was but one of many emanations that proceeded from God and through which men could reach God. And it's in light of this false teaching, it's in light of the spirit of this age and of ours that Paul appeals to us in verse 23. He says, this is the only gospel that saves. Jesus is the only one who can save you, so hold firm to him. Do not bend an inch on Jesus. Do not bend an inch on his supremacy, on his sufficiency. You see, you cannot add to or subtract from this doctrine and still be saved. If Jesus has importance but not preeminence, if he has prominence but not supremacy, the gospel is a worthless lie. The gospel is a worthless lie if Jesus is not supreme. 
You cannot believe that Jesus' death saves you, but also believe that there are other ways to God. The two things are dichotic statements. They cannot coexist. Jesus is either the only Savior or he is not a Savior at all. There is no way he can be one of many options. To say that he is one of many options means that he is not supreme. And to say that he is not supreme means that he cannot save, that he is not sufficient. It's because Jesus is the supreme Lord of everything that he is the sufficient Savior we must exclusively cling to. It's just Jesus. It's only Jesus. It is always Jesus. We don't do anyone any favors when we believe that there are more than one way to God. It is not kind. It is not loving. It is not good. Jesus is either the Savior or we are foolish idiots. We have wasted our lives on him. And so Paul says we must be unswerving, unwavering from this truth. We cannot bend on it even an ounce. Because if Jesus is just one of many options, then he is a worthless savior for you. Without Jesus' supremacy, his sacrifice is meaningless. Without his supremacy, Jesus' death accomplishes nothing. It would be like you or me dying nobly in place of someone else. It might be inspirational, but ultimately it saves nobody from the penalty of sin. It would not be enough. But because Jesus is the supreme Lord of everything, he is the sufficient Savior that we need and the one who we must cling to. Jesus is the king of everything. He paid the price that was needed and only he could pay it. And he did. Our hope, therefore, is in him. Our life is in him. Our joy is in him. That's why we worship only Jesus. That's why we hope in only Jesus. That's why we pray to only Jesus. That's why we don't pray to or worship or pursue any other gods or saints or spiritual powers or religious systems. It's just Jesus. It's him or nothing. No one else can save. No one else can help. Only Jesus can, and he did. And so the question Paul is putting to these Colossians and to us this morning is, where is your hope? See, the Colossians were tempted to believe that Jesus was a hope, but not their only hope. See, the spirit of their age called them to rely on Jesus or on the spiritual powers of angels or on the spiritual forces that were kind of run amok in the day of their world or any combination of all of the above. And just like them, we are tempted to put our hope in something other than the exclusive person and work of Jesus. You see, the world around us tells us that Jesus might be a way, but there is no way he is the way. And I just need to point this out. It is just as exclusive to say that Jesus is definitely not the only way as it is to say that he definitely is the only way. That, those, are, those are equally exclusive statements. To say that he is definitely not the only way is just as exclusive as saying that he is. So it's, when people say that to you, that, that, doesn't really, that doesn't work because both of those things are exclusive statements. The reality is that belief in Jesus as the only exclusive way to be made right with God is what the Bible teaches. There is no give. There is no wiggle room. That's it. The Bible is really clear. And so the world 
The spirit of our age speaks something to us. But our own hearts also deceive us all the time. And we often believe the lie that we need to add something to Jesus' work. Because when Jesus is not our sufficient hope, we try to add our own goodness to that. We try to add our own faithfulness to what Jesus accomplished. We try to add our own performance as it compares to how other people are doing. We say, well, we're not really as bad as these people. Or we still have some work to go, and hopefully that's enough. And maybe somewhere on this scale, we're going to be okay with God. when we hold to the supremacy of Jesus, you get an unshakable hope and you get an unextinguishable passion. You see, you get an unshakable hope because you know that what Jesus did for you was in every possible way enough to make you right with God. There is nothing you can add. There is nothing you need to add. We don't have to worry about appeasing every spiritual force in the world. In the ancient world, there was this constant fear that if you needed to be, make sure you were on the good side of all of the different gods, and there was this constant way that you just lived in this spiritual fear of everything going on. Instead, when Jesus is supreme and our hope is in him, we know that we are loved by the supreme Lord of everything. And so what happens is you get to rest. You get to rest when that is true because you know that you are safe in him and because in him, when you fail, when you inevitably fail, your status and your standing with him is unchanged. Instead, you're secure in your position and so instead of running from God or instead of having fear of him, you run to him because he's the one who has the power you actually need to obey. He's the only one who has the power you actually need to live for him. And so the gospel sets you up so that you might actually go to the one who has the power you need. If Jesus isn't supreme, if he's not sufficient, then there's no way you get to come to God in the midst of your failures. You always have to clean yourself up before you can come to him. But if Jesus is supreme and his sacrifice is sufficient, then you're right with God. And so you get to come to him boldly and gladly in all situations. And that gives you an inextinguishable passion because you did not deserve to be made right with God. We did not not deserve to call him our father. We should be his enemies, but instead the Bible calls us his friends. You notice how nothing in this passage talks about what you've done? There's no verses in this passage that say, and what you did is you added to what Jesus did, or what you did is you kind of just made yourself like acceptable enough so that he would kind of come towards you, and you kind of cleaned yourself up enough so he thought, you know what, maybe there's a shot with this one. We'll see what we can do. None of those verses are in there, and you won't find them in any of the rest of the Bible. Because God wants all of the glory for saving all of the people who should never get saved. You see, we should be enemies of God, but instead we are his children and his friends. And it's that unmerited and all-sufficient grace of God that fuels our love for him. That's the thing that fuels our passion for him. That's the thing that fuels our obedience to him. See, religion is about trying to obey so that you can get on God's good side. The gospel is about that God saved you. God made you right with him. And so you get to obey as a response to all that he has already done. You can't mess up your status with him. You cannot mess up your standing with him. And what that does is it fuels your love for him. It fuels your passion for him. It fuels your longing to live for him. It fuels your longing to give your life back to the one who gave his for you. That's what the gospel does. 
Religion always ends in either pride or despair, but the gospel ends in humble joy. It ends in the best news of all the world that fuels your life lived for Jesus. What happens when Jesus is our supreme king and our sufficient savior? Then we get to proclaim our weaknesses because in spite of them, God uses us. And through them, he gets all of the glory. And when we sin and we live for something other than him, we get to remember again and again all that Jesus has saved us from. We remember the cost that he paid. We remember the supreme king of the universe became lower than the humblest of servants. Remember how good news the gospel is. And it leads to a life of joy and of security and of holiness and of mission. And ultimately, it leads to a life that begins in this world what will, we will enjoy doing for every minute of every hour of every day from now until eternity's end, praising Jesus, the king of everything, our sufficient savior, the only one that we love, the only one we give our lives for, the only one that we pursue our God. It is just Jesus. It is always Jesus. It is only him. And that's what we celebrate when we take communion. We celebrate with the bread that his body was broken for us and that it was enough. That the life that he lived, we should have lived, he lived it for us and it was enough. When we celebrate with the drink, what we remember and what we celebrate is that the blood he shed for us was enough to make us right with God. As he died the death that we should have died. And we celebrate that all of that was needed for our salvation, Jesus accomplishes. And it's by faith that we lay hold of God's unmerited and sufficient grace. And so we are reminded that Jesus is not just our Savior, He's also the Lord we live every day for. Communion, it does not make you right with God. It does not change your status or your standing with him. If it could, then Jesus came for no reason. Instead, communion is a chance for us to remember and to worship God, submitting our lives to him as our Savior and as our Lord and as our King. Every church does communion a little bit differently. At River City, um, during our time of musical worship at the end here, uh, you go to the back of the room, there's a station on the left and on the right, and you just dip the bread in the juice. Uh, you don't need to be a member here, you just need to belong to Jesus. Communion is between you and God, so you go whenever you're ready and whenever you see fit. I'll just invite you as you take communion today, confess to Jesus the things that you are tempted to put your hope in other than him, or in addition to him. Confess to him the people or the things that you have put in the place of preeminence, the place of supremacy in your life. And remember, his grace made known to you when you put your faith in his sufficient work for you. That's what communion is. Communion is a chance for you to remember and to celebrate all that Jesus has done. And ask him to fill you with a passion to live for him because of all that he, the supreme Lord of everything, has done for you. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for your word. We are so thankful for who you are and for all that you have done for us. And God, we just come to confess and proclaim that you alone can save because you 
alone are supreme. Okay, we don't add anything to all that you've done. We cannot add anything. And there are no other sufficient saviors in all of the universe. It is just you. God, we just come and we just confess it. Like some, we are so tempted to put our hope in other stuff and to add to your sufficient work our own goodness, or our own faithfulness, or our own credibility. And we just come and we lay all that stuff down to your feet and say, Jesus, you're enough. You've done all that was needed to make me right with God. And so joyfully and gladly we live for you. We give our lives for you, the one who has given yours for us. And we pray this all in your good and great name. We are so thankful it results in our good. And we pray that you would cause us to live always for your glory. Amen.